So Drake, in the interest of just the, the time of year, the season of giving, I was kind of wondering if there's anything that you're wanting this season. Well, there is one thing I want for Christmas, Brendan. We wish you'll review our podcast. We wish you'll review our podcast. We wish you'll review our podcast and give us five stars. We're shilling our show to you listening in. We wish you'll review our podcast and give us five stars. Also tell your friends about us. Also tell your friends about us. Also tell your friends about us and tell them we're great. We're shilling our show to you listening, listening in. We wish you'll review our podcast and, and give us five stars. Also, please join our Discord. Also, please join our Discord. Also, please join our Discord. Find the link in the description of the podcast. We're shilling our show to you listening in. We wish you'll review our podcast because Jake's mom, mom gave us one star. We we wish you'll review our podcast. We wish you'll review our podcast. We wish you'll review our podcast. Okay, start the show. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And this week, we're talking about Raiders of the North Sea. Shem Phillips' breakout game onto the world stage, Garfield Games, sort of catapult into another class as being a board game designer and a game that many, many people all around the world greatly adore. A worker placement game that brings some unique things to the table. Jake, how are you doing this week? I'm doing really good. Uh, quick question before we start. Are we saying Garfil or Garpil? Because in my headcanon, it was Garpil all day. Garpil. Garpil. <laughs> Gar- Garpil Games. We could go either way with that one. <laughs> as long as we don't say Garfield Games, which is how I misheard the pronunciation many times before I realized and saw it in text. I was like, oh, this is Garpil Games. This is a completely different publisher. Thank goodness it's Ted Shem Phillips, not Richard Garfield. Jake, keep us going. I want to hear rating slogan or review of this game okay i'm giving this game a seven out of ten i think this is a game that has a definite niche in my collection it's one i love to bring out and show to people who may be newer to games or unfamiliar with the worker placement mechanism but still want to play a strategy board game and i think this game is perfect for that uh, it's won a lot of friends with people I show it to. And, and I've actually found that of all the games that I've introduced people to over the years, this one has been one that more of my friends have gone out and purchased for themselves than almost mm. any other. And I think that speaks really highly of the game. So although it's not probably the first game that I would choose to play in kind of an ideal game playing setup, it's one that gets to the table for me a ton and I'm very happy to own. You're like my doppelgamer. It's so annoying. Okay, just to give you context, I'm going to read mine. The undeniable charm of Raiders of the North Sea's worker placement shuffle gives the game and its decision space a bustling feel. Raiders is energetic, dynamic, and snappy. Likewise, the emergent pacing, the different colors of workers add to the game and its arc of preparation, crewing up, and selling for Victory Point Land is a delight. But at the end of the day, the game's victory point outlets feel stale and rote. They let the puzzle, the game's other mechanisms, spin into being down in a way that significantly 
significantly reduces its longevity despite its variable setup in asymmetry. Seven pieces of plunder out of ten. But I totally will say, yeah, complete, complete double crossover matchup. I will say, though, that I 100% see how this game could be the perfect gateway game for someone who's never played a worker placement game before and be really exciting and give just the amount to think about for someone who's sort of taking in a new genre of board games. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, a great one for new players. Uh for all the reasons you mentioned, and I think we'll get into more of it later on, so I'm not going to belabor the point here. Well, before, and when we do, there's going to be a lot of belaboring the point of like how much I love the core mechanisms of this game, despite being frustrated about some of the aspects of it. But I, I think that it's important that we do a game background on this game as much as any, um, because there's a lot of games that sort of have a similar look to Raiders of the North Sea that are published by Garpill Games, Shem Phillips's company. And I think I didn't have a ton of knowledge. I had seen Raiders of the North Sea on a table a few years ago. Uh, maybe it was actually Architects of the West Kingdom that I saw, another Garpill game at PAX Unplugged. And I think as an outsider, it's sort of easy to sort of say, oh, I know a bunch of these games exist. I don't really know how they all relate to each other. So if that's you, don't worry. We're going to get into that on the show. A brief history of Garpel Games before we jump into our traditional exploration of Raiders of the North Sea. Um, so Raiders of the North Sea is designed and published by Shem Phillips and his company Garpel Games. And the primary illustrator, and I think it's important to make sure to note that for these games because the art in them is beautiful. They all share the same artist who goes by the sort of moniker the Miko. And I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly. We'll see. Uh, Mihajlo Dimitrovsky is his full name. Uh, Raiders came out in 2015 and it placed two to four players. So before Raiders of the North Sea came out, Garpill Games published game, uh, family weight games, mostly in New Zealand, where Shem Phillips is based. Between 2009 and 2014, there were a bunch of releases. Then Shipwrights of the North Sea, the prequel to Raiders of the North Sea, well, it came out first. I guess it's the direct predecessor, uh, hit Kickstarter, and it was a really big success. That came out in 2014. And then a bunch of the people who were excited about Shipwrights of the North Sea, this sort of car-driven resource management light drafting game, said, this is great, but we don't want to just build the ships. We want to use them. So Shem Phillips went out and designed Raiders of the North Sea, where you actually get on boats, make a crew, and send them off. Jake, what are you, do you want to sort of let us know some of the others that follow I think the first thing I wanted to kind of highlight is this is like an extensive collection of games that Shem has designed and published by his company uh, and really is a remarkable success among Kickstarter board game companies. I mean, you can really uh, count on one hand how many companies have reached this level of notoriety and success that are kind of like uh, stemming out of the kickstarter passions and and designs of one individual i think of uh, a company like you know stonemeyer games is like a really notorious one that sort of arose out of kickstarter um and and it's there's seldom few others that come to mind that kind of rival that beyond garfield games or garpill games so kudos i think amazing accomplishment by the company um so yeah, there's a ton of these. So there's three in the North Sea saga, three in the West Kingdom saga, uh, a re-implementation of Raiders, which has kind of been their, I guess, biggest commercial hit or or one of them, uh, along with Architects of West Kingdom, I think, which was also a huge commercial success. Um, so then that one got 
re-implemented as Raiders of Scythia last year uh, and won a lot of friends. And then a brand new trilogy, The South Tigris, has been announced. So if you want, I can quickly go through and review each one and tell you what I think about it. Yeah, please do. Okay, Shipwright, and this is me reviewing many of these that I have not played. Shipwright's, uh, just based on like what I've heard about him, my impression of the game. Brendan's looking at me concerned. Shipwrights of the North Sea, skip it. Raiders of the North Sea, we're going to talk about that right now. Explorers of the North Sea, skip it. Architects of the West Kingdom, definitely check this one out if you're a fan of the worker placement genre. I think it's, it's probably the best critically reviewed game of any of the output. Uh, There's a capture mechanism that people really love where you can arrest other players' workers uh, that seems really cool. Yeah. Paladins of the West Kingdom. I played this one and own it. I don't love it. It's a little too complicated and long for me for what it is. It has a great solo uh, Automa version of the game that you can play that I actually did play and thought was really cool. So if solo gives the game a lot of extra value to you, maybe do check this one out. This one's like worker drafting, but you're doing worker placement on your own player board, right? So it's like worker placement where I don't even care what other people are blocking. I just care yes. about the workers. Yeah, it, okay. it has very little interaction okay viscounts the west kingdom is like very strange i played it once and for me it's another one to skip uh very complicated turns kind of this same worker placement idea into like a rondell game uh there's like this crazy mechanism where like sin versus good and if you have these markers that you're moving down these two tracks at once and at any time those two markers hit each other that causes like an explosion which like changes something about the board there's some cool ideas in here it actually reminds me a lot of um uh, praga kaput regni and like it's just Mm. like a collection of a ton of really interesting and cool mechanisms that maybe doesn't hold together as well as i would have liked but it's probably even more complicated than praga is to get through so for me it's a little it's a skip um but there is interesting stuff there. Raiders of Scythia, the re-implementation of Raiders of North Sea. I haven't played it. Uh, it seems like a lot of people think it's like a upgrade, you know, the best ideas from all of the expansions for Raiders included in one box. Uh, so it sounds cool. I have no interest in it just because I already own Raiders. And I tried the, one of the expansions and immediately got rid of it because I just thought it overbloated the game. So like Raiders with included expansion is not something that appeals to me. I will say the cover art is gorgeous on Raiders of Scythia, but when I was looking at the actual art itself in the game, I thought one thing I love about Raiders of the North Sea that we'll get into is the art. And it's just, it reads really clearly. And Raiders of Scythia, for some reason, the color palette is a little bit less vibrant. And the game just kind of looks more stale than I think it needed to based on how gorgeous all of Shem Phillips's other games are. I'm intrigued by the fact that you don't like Viscounts of the West Kingdom, if only because I thought the inner outer rondelle system looks really neat. And also the idea, this game has a mechanism where you have this tableau of cards in front of you that dynamically changes the power of different effects that you're taking as they sort of like shift in and out that look really cool. So I think for me, I definitely, so in my research, I've only played Raiders. I was, my research also says skip shipwrights, skip explorers. They're they're like good building block games, play Raiders. And then I was really curious in playing Viscounts and Architects. And Paladins, I was sort of like, whatever. Architects is definitely the one uh, I'm most intrigued to play. And I will say for Wayfarers of the South Tigris, my hope is that Shem does not continue this trend of creating heavier and heavier games, which it seems mm. like 
you know, architects to paladins to West Kingdom, or, or sorry, architects to paladins to Viscount is like increases in complexity. I'm hoping that Wayfarers gets back into like this kind of like light mid weight game that seems like firmly where Raiders and Architects occupy. Because it seems to me like with this design ethos of Garfield games, that is the sweet pot, sweet spot um, for the games, at least for me. And it seems like most people too kind of echo that based on you know critical reception and i think did architects win the spiel or was it like i think it was nominated nominated. okay it was nominated yep yeah i i agree i to me it seems like the strength at least of raiders of the north sea is the making really ingenious mechanisms and then seeing where they run um so i think without further ado hopefully if you aren't familiar with these games or if you're only kind of familiar with them like i was this helps you understand where Raiders of the North Sea is situated within all of these games. Um, And if you have thoughts on these other games, come into our podcast and let Jake and I know why we're wrong about Paladins and everyone should play it. Come into our Discord. I would be worried if you come into the podcast. Like, how did you get here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't come into our homes. Yeah. (laughs) Well... Yeah, maybe, maybe for a game day at some point, but not today. I think without further ado, though, let's get into the game synopsis and rules overview and then sink our teeth into Raiders of the North Sea. Raiders of the North Sea cast players in the role of Viking warriors, setting out to build a crew, take plunder, and ultimately amass the most victory points through clever resource management and keen decision making in the game's core worker placement puzzle. Each turn, players begin by deciding if they'll prepare in town or set out on a raid. When preparing in town, the active player will take two actions. First, they'll place a worker in any open location on the board, activating its effect. This might allow them to gain coins, take provisions needed to go on raids, draw townsfolk cards, hire crew members from townsfolk cards already in their hand, or use a townsfolk card they already have for a one-time effect, and more actions like these. Then, they'll select a second action by picking up any other worker already in town and activating the effect of the location it formerly occupied, at which point their turn ends and the worker they selected remains in their hand for play at the start of their next turn. If players opt to raid instead, the primary way in which players earn victory points in Raiders of the North Sea, raiding, they'll select a raiding location in one of three areas on the board, each of which have successively stricter requirements to access but give successfully greater amounts of victory points for completing, so long as the player's crew is up to the task. When raiding, in addition to earning victory points, players take plunder, a general term for the game's three resources, which are randomly seeded into each raid location at the start of the game. This plunder can be used to pursue future raids, make offerings to the chieftain back in town by fulfilling contracts of different sets of plunder for victory points, or to increase their armor rating, which in turn makes it easier to gain more victory points in future raids. Unlike town locations, each raiding location can only be accessed once, making timing around particular locations tense. Some locations might also contain Valkyrie tokens, forcing a player to lose one of their hired crew members and any of its associated benefits if they choose to raid in that location. A final twist to Raiders of the North Sea's worker placement system is that the game's workers come in three colors. Raiding locations are accessible only by using workers of certain colors, and a number of town locations are locked behind worker color restrictions, or might provide different effects given the worker type used. This twist adds a bit more tension to the decision space in the mid to late game as players work to ensure they can take actions they want while still ending their turn with the right type of worker to carry out their plans in their subsequent turn. 
The end of the game is triggered when all but one of the game's terminal raiding locations, fortresses, are cleared, or when the game's offering tiles run out, or in the rare instance that all Valkyrie tokens are removed from the board, at which point the player with the most victory points is declared the victor. Thank you, Brendan, as always, for your incredible, amazing, this might be your best ever game overview and rules synopsis. Jake hasn't even heard it yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get into it. Jake, you have to characterize the decision space. Size, type, feel, clarity. Yeah. All of the above. Let's do it. Uh, size. It is small. I think, let me give an example and a comparison for the decision space of this game. I think Imhotep from the games we covered mm. on this show is the most comparable decision yeah. space in that you have a very strict number of options on any given turn that you're weighing between. Um, each turn is going to be, you know, just one simple action. In this case, it's, it's usually two, um, uh, but, but, are, but are very concrete. Uh, and, and also like the impact of any individual action on the game is very slight. And it, you kind of get that similar feeling in Emotep that, you know, all the actions are going to be worth like somewhere between a point, two points, three points to you. So there's not like huge separation in any given decision in the game so i think to if you've played that or you listen to our discussion on emotep uh and you're kind of thinking about that like you're in the general realm for the decision space here so definitely on the smaller end of things uh also on the clearer end of things you can pretty well plan moves out well into advance the only thing that's going to be clouding clouding that just like emotep is the decisions you're opponents take um i think the feel is like it's it's a really i'm gonna use this term uh cautiously because we've been having a lot of discussions about this in our discord and i think we might be doing a, a topic show about it at some point in the future but it feels like a game that's really tempo based like you want to be stay and by that i mean you want to be staying on pace with the other players in the game uh if it's, it's all about this cycle of gearing up and then raiding and then gearing up and then raiding. And if somebody starts raiding like multiple times while you're still stuck gearing up, you're probably falling behind the game's tempo. Um, what, what I want you to, if I've been talking a lot, so can you go with the type of decision space first while I get my thoughts together on how that looks? Yeah, I think the type of decision space is, so it's one that doesn't, neatly fit into sort of waxing waning static or dynamic like we've said because it starts off uh, and it it waxes pretty pretty quickly right you start with a relatively small number of options and then you build up some and increasingly over the game the number of spaces that you're going to be looking at in terms of rating uh is going to grow and then eventually at sort of the mid game onwards it's going to start shrinking again to some extent, right? Because the as the fortresses prune down, as the monasteries and the outposts prune down, given the cards that you have, they're going to start shrinking. Um, and I, I could see an argument for someone who might argue that the decision space is somewhat dynamic, but I think that because of how the game ends, it has a waning feel and it has this sort of structure where it sort of rises. You really feel the beginning, the middle, and the end game of this game. Um, 
the decision space can vary, but it's not varying as wildly dynamically as some of the other games that we've talked about that really can be pushed or pulled in certain directions. It really stays in the sort of corridor of opportunity that exists within the game as it prunes to being lesser and lesser. And I think that's really important for the game because like you were saying, Jake, the tempo is so key. You don't really block each other in the town in terms of spaces. You can every once in a while, just a little bit. It's really about blocking a pair of options or when the different color of workers come into play, maybe denying a color of worker. The only way in which you have that classic worker placement, I'm taking this that you need, is by blocking certain rating locations since those are only ever accessible once. So for me, in terms of the impact of decisions, it the waning aspect of the decision space is the most important because a lot of games are won and lost by who gets to certain locations first. You can also make a case, I think, for static if hmm. in terms of like general feel. Yeah. Taking in everything that you're saying, I think because the game most commonly ends once, you know, th- four of, what is it, five, four of five or three or four of the fortresses at the very end of the game are rated. Uh, in most of my games, that's been what triggers the end game. So certainly, okay, we're racing to the end of a limited supply. Like overall, you could say that's waning, but because of the sort of defined clear middle or beginning middle end there's kind of almost always the same amount of like actual rating options available to you uh throughout the course of the game because you have to build up that's not completely true sometimes you could like race ahead and do a fortress raid like in the midpoint of the game by expending a lot of resources perhaps more than you should uh, to try and kind of race ahead in tempo. But generally at the beginning, you're doing the outpost. Then you're doing the monasteries and what's the other one? So you're doing the harbors first. Then you're doing the arbors and monasteries. Yeah. yeah, and there's outposts three and harbors and there's like four outposts and monasteries and there's like four fortresses. So because the beginning middle end is so defined based on like what you really have the ability to get to and raid successfully, um, it kind of feels like the number of choices and the town choices on the other side of things are always the same. I mean, they change a tiny bit based on the supply of workers. Um, but yeah, like I think each turn of the game feels more similar than it does different. I think that that's true, though I wouldn't argue that I don't think it's a static game. I don't think it pushes enough in that direction where the decisions are the same because of a few key things, which is that the cards really do matter. What cards you have access to, because it changes the potential effects that you have when you go to the town center as single use effects with the multi-use cards, the cards that you get in your hand, what you choose to turn into crew, um, I think, and also the potential for, I, I don't know, I, I think any game where you're, you're building up towards something, it's harder for it to feel static to me, though I get what you're saying of the feel of the game feel static just because the nature of how you're making the decisions turn after turn of the turn is exactly the same. You have to build up to raid the harbor at the beginning. Yep. And it takes probably the same amount of turns building up as it does to build up to raid the fortress at the end. The output is different because you're getting like way more points. But I think, I guess here's what I'm saying. I think that the game is waning and waxing at roughly the same rate over the course of the game. You're getting more ability to do things and options are getting taken off the board 
to where it feels like those things meet in the middle and you get a pretty even line if you were like to graph the decision space throughout the game. I think that's I another- the case for static, not that every decision is the same, but that like it feels the same by through combination of other forces. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I like the argument. I think it's very intriguing. Um, question for you. You mentioned in terms of clarity that it was very, very clear. Do you feel that the cards and the gatehouse don't play that much of a role in the game? So I feel that when you use the gatehouse action right in town, you get to draw two cards. Or if you have the gatekeeper, dope card, you get to draw a third card. Uh, nice bit of tempo gain and efficiency potentially. Really like that guy. And then also the die rolling in the outpost, monastery, and fortress locations. Do you just feel, Jake, that it's so suboptimal to go to those locations when you're not going to get paid off that they don't represent real decisions. They're just, they're choices, but not viable decisions. Um, so that the output randomness of rolling those dice doesn't matter, right? Like if you're going to go and there's almost any chance that you're not going to get paid out, it just doesn't even qualify as something you should really be doing. When you say like not paid out, do you mean not reaching the first barometer for success or not reaching yes. the second barometer for success? The first. Yeah, I don't think... There's instances where that might not be the case. Always sure. the caveat that I'm not a great player at this game. I've played this game maybe a dozen times over the course of like three years. I don't think that I've been in a situation very often where I've taken that route, right? Where I've said... I'm going to go here and risk it. It feels like the way I approach the game, by the time I have resources to raid somewhere and the people necessary, like it's very likely that I will choose to raid a spot where there is a certain outcome. I think that's fair. And I think in terms of what the game is pushing you to do based on the output in terms of points, and this game, we're using output. It's like such a sterile term. We're not even like... It's it's funny, we're not using the language of the game, right? We're not saying like the plunder that you take and the glory that you receive. No, like it's literal output. Like what victory points am I going to get by going to this location? Because that's what matters. Um, and I think that does speak to some of the stale feel of the game for me is that it's so procedural and like, okay, I have to go to this fortress. I need to get at least the lowest amount. Um, and to me, the decision space doesn't offer a ton of agency over potentially pushing it just because it's so hard to get ahead of the output randomness of your cards. You play the hand you're dealt. You don't decide always the strategy you're going to play oh, de- in this game. Definitely. And I think, again, you know, a game like Emotep is a great example of that. Like, there just isn't a lot of room in the system for like off the wall strategies. You kind mm-hmm. of have to follow the game as intended to be competitive. So I would say like in terms, and I think a lot of times people in board game media talk about this as variability, right? I don't feel like there are a lot of different paths to victory in this game. Uh, there are you know, different ways you can score points. You could go heavy on Valkyries. You, know, you could go heavy on armor. You could go heavy on uh, trying to get the favor tokens. Um, But all of those things mean you're building up your boat of people with people. You're getting the provisions that you need uh, to undertake raids to get resources, right? It's always going to come back to like raiding. So I think like the game is being efficient in that. And where you can find advantages is like you're saying with the gatekeeper card, right? You can make certain actions in town 
more efficient to you. So then you want to like prioritize that as part of your strategy or you get a hero card that gets extra strength based on, you know, having a higher armor value. So of course you're going, that's going to like increase the value of taking that armor action to you. Um, so you definitely find different paths through the game in the individual play, but all of those are in, I think, a pretty tight bound of efficiently raiding spaces on the board. Definitely. And I think even going further than that, I think beyond efficiently raiding spaces on the board is the main course to victory in the game. And then from for me, the strategies just break into two. Are you raiding the upper locations or are you raiding harbors to then do offering tiles and maybe a few outposts and monasteries, but mostly focusing on using offering tiles to get to victory. And I think one thing about this game and its decision space is what is good in any given game is going to matter mostly on what your opponents are doing, right? Because if you're over competing on these spaces in, in the middle sections, the outposts in the monastery and the fortresses, and you really need them to score victory based on how you've built your hand, right? You've invested in a crew that can handle these tougher raids. If all of your opponents did that, you're over competing for the potential points on the table in that area. So then it, maybe it's more effective in that game if you're the player who's sticking back to the harbors and just saying, oh, I'll just keep the chieftain happy, giving some offerings, right? So it's, it's about reading the table a little bit, but you don't have that much agency to push in one direction or the other, in, yeah. my, in my experience. Right, I, I agree. I think it's definitely a game about finding that efficient path based on the cards you've got and the people you're playing with action you factor in. You also yeah. factor in you know, how the uh, plunder tokens are distributed in the various spaces uh, that can matter a lot. And I think it's really fun finding those like little bits of efficiency. Uh, and it's, there's definitely a lot of skill to that. Like when I play against a new player in this game, uh, I almost always win. Like there, there is strategy and skill. Like this is a strategy board game, but it's one that has like a very narrow banded decision space. And I think once you learn the skill of understanding how the plunder are distributed across the board in that random setup, uh, and you can interpret the board, I think the skill ceiling is fairly low compared to some games we've covered. There, You are going to run up against it. Once you can read the board and understand the shape of the game based on how the plunder tokens have come out, I think you can you have that skill. Um, and I will say it is a cool aspect of the game. I love the fact that if there's a bunch of Valkyrie tokens early uh, in, in the harbors or in the monasteries and the outposts, that that's really going to change the speed of the game if players go to those locations, right? Rather than if a lot of them are focused in the fortresses or grouped together in a way that players can avoid them, it can speed and slow the game down in an interesting way. Um, but I, I actually, you said something about Valkyrie tokens, which is that you could kind of focus on them. And I feel that Valkyrie tokens, I wish you could focus on them even more and build a whole strategy around them. Uh, but in my attempts to do that outside of just making them an efficient outlet towards the out end of the game, or if, in a strategy focused on like, I'm going to go for harbors and offering tiles. So if I lose a few crew members that I don't need, that they never really paid out enough to make them worth it. And I wish that that area of the decision space was a little bit bigger because I think the idea of having to give up one of your crew members that you've invested a lot of effort into getting is interesting. And it's almost like a push your luck of, do you need this to stay ahead? But in my experience, it's not quite there. This has been a really ramshackle, quick conversations, Jake. Should we get into some of the mechanisms? That sounds great. Let's do it. Okay, so the thing I love most about this game is the worker mechanic. The idea that on your turn, it's as simple as you place a worker down and you pick a worker up. 
It lends the game this beautiful sense of movement and pacing that the first time I played Raiders of the North Sea, it just enraptured me. The, the board has this flow and this sort of energy to it that you don't feel in a lot of worker placement games where things feel a little bit more stagnant and the board sort of locks down. Uh, so I'll just say from a feel in terms of the decision space, I love that aspect of the game, the sort of bustling nature of a town as workers shuffle between players and between locations. It's just really cool. I love this mechanism. I think it's genius. And I'm actually shocked that I haven't seen it pop up in, you know, you know, be borrowed in, in many other designs. I'm sure there are maybe other games out there that do use it. Um, I haven't come across them. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's so fun. And to you know it's like i get a worker placement game but every turn i get like double the endorphins because instead of getting to do two things or one thing i get to do two um and it's also you know a nice little puzzle to think like you know where do i want to put this down and where do i want to pick something up uh, especially when that economy of workers and the available supply changes and you have to start thinking ahead to your next turn of like i need this type of color of worker uh to take a more efficient uh, action next turn um but what if where that's placing isn't as efficient as the other thing you get into a lot of i think that there is a lot of fun to be had exploring that decision space too um so i really do enjoy that yeah and i will say that the it there's this interesting realization when that you have when you play the game right that oh spaces can't be blocked if you only ever care about one action on your turn generally i mean because of the color mechanics some locations are going to be blocked where certain locations had require a specific color to activate like the longhouse and paying off the chieftain with a gray or a white worker which you don't get access to until the workers come in from future which i think we need to talk about in the scope of this worker mechanic because in my mind the mechanic at a base level is so clever and then you add this color wrinkle and it just takes it to the next level it's just brilliant but the fact that for the most part especially in the early game that it's only a pairing of of actions ever get blocked i think is cool and it makes you feel more clever than you would because like you said you're sort of solving a little puzzle on your turn of like okay, do I want this and this? Do I want this and that? And what's the right way to go about this without ever letting it be too punitive to any one player, which makes it almost the perfect type of game for what you were saying, Jake, as the sort of like introductory worker placement game, because no one's getting all that punished. You can't get blocked too tremendously difficulty because by taking a location, you're giving everyone else at the table access to using it yeah. in subsequent turns. I I'm going to use a, a term that I only amusing because i can't think of a better way to put it right now but it's kind of annoying because it's a word i use a lot uh to talk about very different things but i feel like the design of this mechanic is like very efficient from like a rules to decision space mm. uh angle um so i think that is what makes this game as you're saying so accessible to people like because i only have to explain seven spaces or however many there are in the game uh, and each one of those in and of itself is a super simple idea. It's just like get three coins or draw two cards off the top of the deck. You know, you could explain that to anybody, even if they've never played a board game before in their life. Um, and then like all of the interesting decisions are offloaded onto this like idea of what really matters is how you sequence it, uh, how you combine those two actions uh, to, to get more value out of it than somebody else at the table. And, it's really up to the players how much they want to invest in that, right? 
you could play the game without even really thinking about that at all uh, and just try and do like any whatever seems good to you in that moment and that would be fine and you're not going to win the game but you're also not going to get blown out because of like how tightly confined the game is right you might lose something like 35 to 50 which you know is totally meaningless in you know what are points they don't really matter or mean anything but if you're a new player playing a game it feels a lot better to lose 35 to 50 in Raiders of the North Sea than it does to lose 100 to 200 in Castles of Burgundy. I think it also, like you're saying, Jake, it this mechanism, especially when you take the different color of workers into account, has so much, so many positive emergent consequences on the system overall that players don't have to think about that just make the game feel a little bit more alive that give it that sense of beginning, middle, and end without there being a sort of arbitrary deck of this is age one, this is age two, this is age three. There's a discrete beginning, there's a discrete middle, there's a discrete end. In this game, the beginning is when you're building your crew initially and maybe going to those harbor locations that require the starting color of workers, the black workers. By doing that, players bring that new color of worker into the economy, the gray worker, which then becomes really attractive potentially because everyone wants to use it for the longhouse, or maybe you want it because you want to access some of the higher order rating locations that are more efficient for your provisions. Uh, so you use it to go to a monastery or an outpost. And the fact that it takes those workers out of the game permanently, when you go to a harbor and put a black worker there, you take a black worker out of the economy. That's just so interesting. And it changes how the feel of accessing different actions is, right? The black workers that you start the game with, like you mentioned, Jake, give you three coins. The later workers that get pushed into the system, the gray and white ones only give two coins. So it changes how easy it is to get new crew members that you need to pay these coins to, to hire in the mid to late game. It makes it more difficult. So it gives you the sense of, okay, I really want to build up. I really want to build up. Okay. Have I built up enough? Can I venture out? Is this the right time to do it? That gives just a little bit of that. Like how well can you read what time in the game it is in terms of your position against other players? Is it the right time? Are you making a decision to strike out and take your first raids before you have to build back up again based on some of the limits? Um, and I love that about the game. Something really interesting happened in my most recent play of the game uh, that I played this week to prep for the episode, which was that there were no gray workers in the supply of workers at towards the very end of the game. Um, because one harbor spot that had a lot of these Valkyrie tokens that kill your crew members early was just never raided. So the one gray worker never got into the supply, which meant that there was like then late in the game, one very uh, appealing monastery spot, I think. I can't remember. It was your outpost or monastery spot uh, that was inaccessible because you have to mm. raid it with a gray worker. So like the only way to do that would be to then on your turn, go do this really in unoptimal move of going to the harbor. Uh, but then that just puts this worker in the supply so the next person could take it. So that's just like a kind of like an interesting result of this mechanism um, that happened in this recent play. So it does, I think, serve well to like create dynamic and interesting game states from, from game to game in a game that otherwise doesn't have a tremendous amount of variability. The other way that it does that too, Jake, that I think is so interesting is that it changes the the benefit of certain worker placement locations dynamically throughout the game. Because depending on how much you actually care, sometimes you just play 
and you're like in the stage of the game where you don't really care what worker color you end up with at the end of your turn. You're going to be taking more actions in town. Uh, you don't need to make an offering at the longhouse. You just you need to draw cards and you need to take provisions. So a gray or a white worker, it's not makes no difference to you, right? They're both going to get you two provisions. You don't care about the gold that you get from a white worker. But sometimes you really do care about the color of a worker that you end your turn with. And that's changing, that's incentivizing you maybe to take what would otherwise be an inefficient action. Maybe some player has gone over and put their worker in the, the armor location or the discard two cards location. You have to decide, okay, is this the turn that I go for this? Do I take this suboptimal action. I don't want to discard two cards. Do I do it because I need that white worker more or I need to deny someone that white worker more than I need other actions in the game? Um, and it changes sort of the value in a way that I think is really organic and, and neat about the decision space as well. Definitely. And there isn't a tremendous amount of player interaction, but what there is and because of you know how tightly clustered the value of any given action is, uh, it can be really impactful in the game. Um, so it'll, you know, you'll never have, I, I'll, you know, I shouldn't say never, but very rarely will you have a turn where you can't do anything beneficial to yourself. Um, but with Clever Play, you can definitely create situations where your opponent, you know, oh, I know they need to raid. So I'm going to like plop this, uh, this like white worker that I have to put down on the least efficient space for them. Um you know, or or sometimes you can even do it in a way that's like, oh, well, they can't, they won't be able to like get the provision they need and the worker they need if I set up my turn this way, if I choose not to put a worker down on the provision space or, or whatever. Um, and those can be really impactful in the game. The other thing I think is interesting about this is again, it's like an efficient way that doesn't add much at all to the rules overhead, but does add a ton to the strategic output of the game uh if you choose to i shouldn't say output that doesn't even make sense i'm just saying output over and over for no reason uh to the the strategy of the game if you choose to go down that path to explore it so for example the level one of understanding this game is just that different worker placement spaces uh give different value based on the color of worker right Anybody sure. can understand that getting three coins using the black worker is better than getting two coins using the gray or white worker. So sure. it makes you feel clever on your turn when you have a black worker uh, in hand to start your turn and you can take that action. But kind of like something I didn't really get about this game until I played it many, many times is that like there's really no such thing as an efficient or inefficient action placement spot because that is just enabling somebody else to pick it up mm. and get that same reward or harm them the same. Like sometimes it feels like really bad, like, oh, I don't want to put this white worker here to get two coins because it's not optimal. But then that like somebody is going to have to pick that up and to get punished equally to what you were. So the only way to really get got is if you put something down that's inefficient and then you're also the one that's forced to pick it up. Uh, so I, I just think that's like really interesting too, how that's sort of like a hidden output of this. That like the thing that really matters is uh, what you pick up. You want to always be picking up things that are efficient because 
somebody else will get punished if you have to do something inefficient when you put it down. It doesn't matter. But you don't want to be the one turn after turn picking up workers from inefficient action spaces. Which I think it, it's so interesting that you mentioned that, Jake, because I think it contributes to the fact that my favorite player count to play with that has been three. Because I think it creates that interesting dynamic of you're not necessarily able to always push one player in a certain direction, but it creates just a little bit of a venue to slip by if you can navigate that shuffle of workers a little bit better than your opponents. What's your favorite player count to play this at? I think two, actually. Like It's one that I like that Bridget likes to play with me, my wife. Um, and it plays so fast at two uh, that it's just like, it's, it's just a really quick, game like if you want to play like i feel like it's about as quick as i have in my collection where i still feel like i've played uh, i've had like a satisfying strategy game experience you know it's not Mm. as satisfying as the experience of playing feast for odin in the worker placement space but it's still like ticking enough of those boxes of like letting me think letting me strategize letting me make tactical choices sure you can sit down and say we played a board game right exactly um that yeah so I think two is really good. I think three is really good. Uh, four, it starts to get a little bit overstaying its welcome in my experience. Um, and though, I mean, I think it's perfectly fine if you have a snappy group playing it. And I think there's an expansion that allows for five that no interest in. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which you cannot actually do in this game, but I would do it before entering the decision space. Okay. What about the rating? I want to get your thoughts on the rating and plunder mechanics generally, Jake. Specifically, I want to start with the dice mechanic. What are your thoughts on this mechanic, how it affects the decision space? And basically, yes, those things. Please go. I think it is a mechanism that increases the fun of the game, uh, decreases the stress of playing the game, we talk a lot about kind of intrigue games or at least i talk a lot about this like i don't want my to introduce somebody to a game that feels like chess and at the end of the day they say like oh well like i'm dumb you know because i lost when they can like only have themselves to blame so i like it for a game that i intend to teach to new players uh, when there is some element of randomness and i think this is a nice way to do it that actually is just like fun uh, generally I think the impact of it is very slight. I feel like when mm. I'm playing the game, a lot of times what rolling the dice means is like, okay, I need to roll a 10 or to 12 here to get some benefit, uh, or I need to not roll a three or lower uh, in this action. I feel like it's like very rare. And maybe, and maybe that's just because the way I play it and the way I like to try and go for like a sure thing but i feel like it's rare, very rare that i've like am going to a space and it's like please seven or better um so and even if even if that's the case we're talking like two or three points uh not a huge impact um uh, and, and just you know rolling dice are fun so i say you know why not yeah it's it's interesting in terms of it's why not is a good way to put it it definitely does help the game push, I think, in that direction of what you were mentioning in terms of decision space being at more palatable for anyone. That It's easier to get the game to the table with people who are newer to games because it gives you that language that you're used to of rolling dice um, without having the consequences being so huge. It's easy to evaluate the decision of it would be foolish to waste my resources going to this location, spending all these provisions, potentially some gold 
to go here if I'm not going to get any victory points. So you sort of have that base level heuristic. And then from there, it sort of becomes how much risk do I want to take in terms of, okay, I know I'm going to get an output. Does it make sense to push a little harder, take an armor location and maybe increase my chances a little bit in the future of getting some of the second level or even third level payoffs. I think it adds texture to the game without adding too much complexity. And it creates these sort of slightly more exciting moments that the game might otherwise suffer from. I talked about how it can feel a little bit stale. And I think one of the ways that it doesn't feel stale is this dice mechanic. Um, because rolling dice always give you a moment that you might potentially be really excited about. Yeah, And I like it increases the card design space a little bit too. The the guy that lets you re-roll dice, if he's in your crew, it's fun. Little nice decision point. Um, I don't know. I love what you said about it creating kind of uh, exciting moments. I think it also creates excessively exciting moments. Yeah. Right? If you play, I keep comparing it to Emotep, so I'll do it one more time. But if you play a game of Emotep and you don't understand the tactics and strategy of the game, like the exciting moments to the extent that there are some are likely to just blow right by you. Um, but if you're a brand new board gamer, you know, sitting down or you're playing this game with your family, who's, you know, you've got them to the table, uh, but they haven't played a lot of games before. It's really like somebody needs to roll a 12 and they do, or like, I just can't roll lower than a four and I roll a three. And then it's just like this, like disaster. Like that is a moment that anybody could appreciate and enjoy. And I think like, remember when they think back about this game, uh, like fondly, right? Like, Oh, that was fun when that happened. Where if you didn't have that, like what would be the exciting moment at all in an accessible way? Right. Okay. I, I did get to like go to this, fortress and got 10 points i think it like leaves that kind of imprint in your mind in a way that's really important uh for this game to be successful as that gateway game that's bringing people into the hobby definitely it has a less exciting ring than the memory of i went to the final rating location that had three valkyrie tokens maximizing my efficiency by getting rid of my crew right at the last moment to turn them into victory points that I didn't care about anyway. It's just that sort of thing that if you're not as deep in terms of thinking about how to play games all the time, you're not. that's not going to be a standout moment in the same way that rolling the dice actually is. Yeah, I think there might be, just like flagging this for like future discussions, I think there's something interesting there about a decision space or just game design where like what's exciting about that moment for the game is that you're going to one of these big spaces, but like mm. that excitement is being like imprinted onto something else that then makes it easier for the players to understand and, and appreciate also in a way that like everybody at the table can like in that moment is like excited about these dice, right? It makes like everybody kind of like stop what they're doing and like thinking about for their strategy and like focus in on this one thing. Right, because on every other turn of your game, right, you're just moving, you're shuffling around workers in the town. So it, it's easy for people to not necessarily pay attention until it's their turn when that's happening because the turns are so quick. You put something down, you take a, you take your three coins, you pick something up, you draw your two cards. But on the raid turn, you're just doing the one thing. And I think the dice invite everyone to participate and look at the outcome in a way that it brings you together in a way that otherwise you just are sort of in your own decision space. 
So I think that's what you're getting at. And to me, that's so cool. Those like the game is designed around this like slow buildup that increases the stakes. And then this exciting moment that's perfectly paired with this dice rolling that actually works really well for accomplishing the, this is a big moment. Everyone pay attention. Yeah. And the impact of the dice is like, seems calibrated just right where it's not like too annoying because you don't feel like the game always comes down to the dice roll. Yeah. You're not playing Yahtzee. Yeah. Right. Totally. Let's talk about the town locations as much as there's, I think, a ton to talk about because they're all fairly. <sighs> I, I don't was know. Gonna say, is there a lot to talk about? I kind well, of feel I like think, there's not. <laughs> I think for me, I do really like the existence of the treasury, the location that allows you to discard one card to gain two silver or discard two cards to gain a gold. I think this location increases the skill ceiling a little bit. Um, in terms of knowing when it's the right time to discard certain cards. I also, maybe this just naturally as we blaze by discussing actual locations to talk about the town hall that lets you play one of your crew or your townsfolk people from your hand for their single use effect rather than making them a member of your crew and getting a permanent effect. I love this location. I think this extra little wrinkle of the cards in the game being multi-use cards elevates the game and elevates the decision space in a way that gives there a little bit more for you to sink your teeth into than if this wasn't there. When you get a card like the Forger, uh, the Forger is a card that lets you, whenever you take provisions, to take one extra provision uh, if you go to the mill. This card is really good early on. It's cheap to to it's really cheap to recruit the forger, add her to your to your crew, um, but she doesn't provide a ton of benefit late game. If you draw the forger in the mid early mid game, it can be a tough value judgment to know if you should spend the time going to the barracks, hiring her to make her a permanent part of your crew when she has this high opportunity cost of not being that good at raiding. She's just really good at preparing for raids, but it's still early. Or you could use her for the single-use effect and get a really efficient use out of that worker when you go to the town hall to draw two provisions and potentially gain tempo on the provision if you can go to the mill using a gray worker, gain two, play to the town hall, gain two more, and get ahead in terms of efficiency of everyone. That creates interesting value judgments that I think elevate the game and all of the efficiency cards the gatekeeper can do this the jeweler the gatekeeper lets you draw more cards the jeweler lets you get more tokens um the recruiter who makes hiring more efficient i think i really like those cards that actually play into these multi-use effects with the town hall and for me is one of the most fun aspects of the game yeah i mean multi-use cards have got to be like if we were like a public if we were like a polling firm like sure. polling public opinion amongst board gamers of like mechanisms they like. That's got to be like one of the highest polling of all mechanisms. Like everybody loves multi-use cards. It's great. Like, right. You just have so much, there's so much upside to having multi-use cards. So I think it's a super smart addition to this game. Uh, you don't have dead cards. It's each one gives you more things to think about possibilities, decision space. It's like all there. So definitely an appreciated element of this game by me too what are your favorite cards in the game jake i like the ones i i think when i play this game i really like the strategies that involve going like prioritizing on a type of place to raid so Mm. there's a a card that i don't know the name of the card but it, it just gives you one extra point for uh, going to the monastery and there's a version of that that gives you one extra point uh for going to the outpost i really love c- trying to collect two of those um and then it just it like just 
changes the value proposition of rating those spaces so much. Uh, it's so much in my favor that it, it feels like it's not like, oh, wow, I'm such a genius. It's like one of those combos that the game is just like feeding you uh, this like synergy, but it really does feel satisfying. I think those are cool too, because I think what you're saying is, is that the presence of those cards in your crew and in your pool opens the decision space in a way that they wouldn't otherwise, uh, that aren't available in the game. So they feel even more empowering in that way because the strategic paths are so strict that without the the crew member that gives you extra points for going to the harbor, you just kind of go to your one, maybe two harbor locations, and then you get out of there and you focus on the next tier. But if you have that guy, maybe that pushes you in the direction of, okay, I'm going to really clean up on these harbors and focus on the longhouse as terms of my victory point outlet. And I like those games because they feel different. It pushes it slightly in a different direction. And well, I don't always have a ton of agency. Usually if you have, usually the starting hand filter, I feel there are interesting decisions, but the more you play, I feel like the clear paths become obvious in terms of what you should be prioritizing early game, mid game, and late game, just because so many of the cards are clearly better in the early game, mid game, or late game. Um, but I like the games where, oh, I got two of the same crew member in my starting hand that lets me raid harbors for two extra points. Yeah. The harbors are laid out in a way where I'm not even going to have to Valkyrie them away. Let's do this. I'm going to be the harbor guy. Yeah, the cards I don't like is, and this maybe this gets into like strategy. Again, not an expert of the strategy of this game, but like the, the cards that seem more about getting a lot of strength into your crew mm. so that you could get more points from raiding towards the end. I think that the value proposition isn't there because these cards are generally expensive to play and they're not really, I th- you know, this game, we keep going back to it. It's like a game about tempo, a game about efficiency. Uh, so I'd much rather have cards that are like guaranteeing me efficiency of points or guaranteeing me efficient uh, efficiency in action or worker placement spaces like you've been talking about over cards that's just like, oh, cool. This is like a four power guy that's going to make me like a bit stronger for rating. I don't know. It's, I, I wonder if like the balance there is like slightly miscalibrated. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think that there's better. I'm trying to think one card. There's cards like that, that I think are better or worse than others. Like there's the card that helps you raid the fortress by whenever he's in your crew, you get extra uh, rating power when you go to those fortress locations making it more likely that you beat the higher tiers of how difficult it is to raid out a fortress i like those because if i draw them in the mid or late game i know i can pivot into them and leverage a little extra effect versus like the berserker that just is good at raiding everywhere yeah if you valkyrie it, it comes back into your hand well it's one card it's like half of an actions effect I'm not that worried about Seems it. Seems not it's great. Just, I don't even want to be doing it in the first place. Right. Like if I wanted a better sand wedge, I, I, I don't. I just want to not hit into the sand trap. So don't help me get out of the sand trap. <laughs> just help me not get it in in the first place. What do you think about the hero cards? Because I think that is uh, something that's focusing on power, but to me is certainly an efficient way of doing it. Can you go into the hero cards in explanation of them? So the hero cards are, there's only one of each hero card. I think there are only three hero cards in the game. um, And they each give you extra strength for your crew based on some other aspect Mm. of the game. So one gives you, I think it has like a base strength of three or four. And it gives you like one extra strength for every other crew member you have. One gives you extra strength for every two Valkyrie tokens you have. And one gives you extra strength for like every two or three spaces you move up the armor track 
I think that these are cool in that they signpost you if you get them early on, like, okay, this is the direction I should go in. Um, but I think they take a ton of investment to make work. What do you think of them? I think they're like overpowered. Mm, I think I think like they point you too easily into a strategy. It adds too much efficiency into doing that. The only one that might be that is more balanced than the other is the Valkyrie one, because like we've already talking about like sure. the value proposition of doing the Valerie Valkyrie track in the first place is a little bit down. So that maybe just kind of like evens it out. But I think it can honestly be a little too swingy, right? If you can pay four coins for something that just gives you like plus seven power for your crew and somebody else is playing paying four points for something that four coins to give you something that gives you plus four power for your crew. It's like, it's just, it seems like one place where the game is unbalanced in a pretty serious way where it like so much this game feels like the really small incremental things. So I don't love them. And I also think it can kind of like lead to, it, it, it works both for and against it as a new player experience. Like it's awesome if you're a new player and you get one of these badass hero cards. Um, but if you're like a new player and you're not lucky enough to draw one uh, and you're buddy has this badass hero card it's kind of like it's weird i'm surprised this game doesn't have that as like a variant module where you could Mm. like start with one in your hand or not or something it just seems weird that you could just like randomly draw these in the deck i do actually i'm intrigued by the idea of variable starting setups just because the game is already variable and how it sets up so having a little bit more agency over how it starts could be really interesting in terms of your direction yeah, I mean, you could easily implement that at your table and just say sure. like, hey, we're all just going to draw one of these randomly, except for that there's only three. three. So yeah. that seems weird too for a four-player game. Okay, let's talk about scoring because this is the, to close this out, this is the aspect of the game where I have the biggest issues. I think that the contract fulfillment mechanism of the Longhouse works, but it's just like so stale and it's not super interesting. The idea that, okay, I can collect this specific set and get paid out for points uh i I don't know the outlets of how you're getting points in this game just feel all so samey in terms of your ability to make interesting decisions with the plunder you've collected or the provisions and rating tools you've collected those blurring somewhat because gold is a plunder and a rating tool to me is just minimized because it always ends up being kind of obvious what you should be doing with it given your opportunity costs and i'm craving some aspect of the game like even arnak that temple track that pushes you to make interesting decisions of how you're pushing up on a certain area or down on others and you always have to keep your magnifying glass above your book something that just adds a little texture to the point outlets that's missing here for me and i think just makes all of the decisions of once i've done the fun parts of the game of preparing and actually rating a little bit boring yeah i know that in the expansions like the victory points is uh, is what's touched on a lot um i had the hall of heroes expansion which made it i probably shouldn't go into it because like i can't remember exactly but it's something like every time after you took you went to the hall of heroes and it would like reveal a new type of quest or something like that uh so it just was it, it like added length to the game but i think it did add some texture there so that might be uh something that would add some value there mm. Interesting. I will say that there's a lot of love that I've heard from discussing this game with people about some of the expansions in the game. So yeah, most people interesting that yeah that the victory points are honed in on as a way to improve the decision space and the game yeah. overall. Yeah, I would say my final thoughts on the victory points. Just 
I think it's works, right? It works fine. Yeah, it works. It's unexciting. Yeah. It's also easy to understand. And that might also kind of aid in teaching it to new players too. Well, that's Raiders of the North Seal. Thank you for another awesome week of Decision Space. As always, Jake and I would love to hear your thoughts on the game, our conversation, other Shem Phillips games. Uh, in our Discord or on Twitter or on BoardGameGeek, you can find our Discord link in the show notes. There's an awesome community of people there all from all over the world discussing games really all the time. You can find us on BoardGameGeek just by searching Decision Space BoardGameGeek. You'll find our podcast blog uh, and also our podcast pages. And you can find us on Twitter at Decision Spa, S-P-A. You can find myself at Burnside B-H and Jake at J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. Thank you next all. Week, so, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Thank you all. And like Jake said, and next week we're going to cover Azul. So for pre-planners, know that we're covering Azul. We buried the lead. We didn't say at the beginning, you're here. I know you're invested. Play it physically, play it on BJ. And we're going to talk about that abstract joy that is collecting those Starburst bits. And thank you to Henry for our intro and outro music. Reach out. We'll see y'all next time. Take care, y'all. Bye. Bye.